Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi, and welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and the sober curious. And this is episode 76. Um, it's me on my own today. And so Mandy's not with us, but I'm really, really excited to introduce someone very, very special today. And this is Kit, uh, Kit Messenger. She is an educationist. She's actually uh, my teacher's both both of my children's ex-head teacher. She's an educationist at heart and she's on a mission to change the way children are supported. Um, and I can honestly vouch for that. And she's revolutionary and wonderful and inspiring. And I'm super excited to talk to her specifically around neurodiversity and what's happening with young children and even with adults, actually, um, who are finding out that they are neurodiverse. So welcome, Kit. Oh, thank you. And thank you for such a lovely introduction, Kate. You're welcome. So look, we're doing this during lockdown. So um, we were talking about a few benefits, but how are you doing? I'm I'm good. Yes, I'm uh, using lots of my own uh, models to stay feeling in control and calm. Um, so yeah, I've been very busy and trying to um, use it to become fitter and healthier rather than the opposite, which would be an easy thing to happen. You could easily slip into doing very little, couldn't you? I think you could. And it seems to go up and down, doesn't it? Like one day I feel like I'm bang on it and the next day I'm like, oh, go (laughs) girl. Structure. Structure's my team. Yeah. My my key is structure and routine and having a dog where you have to get up because they don't, Mm. they're, they're not having any of it with staying in bed. Yeah, so our dog, so I've got, um, kids had the school dog, Bertie Button, who, I mean, the kids just still talk about Bertie when, you know, when I've done school running before lockdown. And, um, we have Bertie's sister, Bobbin. So, I know. How <laughs> I know, very, very random. But so, Kit, um, you know, this is, you know, a sober podcast. And, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to speak to you, you know, you are such a, leading light in this in this topic and in this area so we feel really lucky to know you because obviously um one of my children identifies as neurodiverse um and so and really I've noticed a lot of people within the sober community we seem to either have kids who are or identify at that as neurodiverse ourselves once we understand what it is Mm. so I really I'm so excited to talk to you about this um and I wonder if we could sort of start by if you could explain a bit about what neurodiversity is for people who might not know what it is. Mm. And it was quite, I mean, I do uh, provide lots of training to schools and police and all different kinds of organisations. And the thing that's really struck me is that very few people have heard the word. So it's not something that's really a narrative um, within the UK to, to, to much of an extent yet but I think it's increasingly so and there's certainly organizations out there who um, are really trying to push awareness so neurodiversity is really about um, abilities being out of balance is is a kind of summary statement and it includes lots of different 
profiles that people will have heard of, but they don't necessarily recognize them as being neurodiverse. Um, so ADHD, um, ASC or autism spectrum, uh, covering lots of different um, areas. So some people uh, would talk about Asperger's. That might be another um, term that people have heard about. Uh, pathological demand avoidance is another term people might have heard about. So there's those clinical neurodiverse profiles that they're called clinical neurodiverse profiles they're called that because it's clinical practitioners who can diagnose so you it would have to be a health professional who diagnosed autism or Tourette's is, a, is another neurodiverse profile or ADHD um, there's other there's other uh, categories of neurodiverse uh, neurodiversity so um, dyslexia dyscalculia um, dysgraphia um, what used to be called dyspraxia, but the um, the more modern term is uh, developmental coordination disorder. Um, but there's been increasing recognition by the British Psychological Society over the last number of years that mental health can also um, s uh, lead to the same profile or similar profiles as neuro other neurodiverse profiles such as ADHD. Um, so mental health is also recognised as is um, neurological brain injury and other neurological uh, disorders such as MS and um, uh, brain injury. So, yes, yeah, so it really does cover a, a quite a big range of different um, issues that people or different. I like to say profiles because I think it's less negative because I don't see necessarily ADHD and ASC. I don't see it as a negative thing. I think it's just a profile that someone has. Mm. And so um, why is it so important for us as parents or, you know, if, if we may have been struggling in a certain area, why is it important for us to maybe be able to identify that and schools? What, why is this you know, is coming on the radar over the last couple of years, I've noticed. And what, why is it important that we know and what's great about that, do you think? I think the, the biggest reason for me that it's important is the way people perceive what, uh, what might be called behaviour so um and difficulty. So when people have difficulty, and particularly in school, but also in the workplace, um, people tend to see it as the person's fault. So if someone let's take let's take a, a young person, a teenager, or or a, or a four year old, um, who starts poking people or running about and not keeping to what people the expectations or uh, uh, rules, as people might call them, what can often happen is um, the adults around that child immediately think that's bad behaviour. That that's a narrative that we've had for many 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 years. And it ha what hasn't, it hasn't caught up with the brain science and it hasn't caught up with what we now know about the brain and why some young people and, and adults, why some people struggle. And mm. so when, when, the, uh, when people understand more about neurodiversity, what happens is they start addressing those difficulties very, very differently. First of all, with absolute empathy, love and support. And I think for me, that's the that's why I'm on a mission to change things, because whilst we're still in these punitive measures, which is ubiquitous across the school system, um, we we will be we won't be supporting young people properly. And we know the terrible um, 
what happens as a result of that is really really bad and I think we're probably coming to that later on in some of the in some of the questions that you're we were going to discuss but the 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 fallout of young people being punished for genuine difficulties they've got is really really awful and exacerbates the very difficulties they've got so that basically what yeah well, can you go on a bit you know what mm. are what are some of the fallouts of that well if i talk about some of the should i talk about some of the difficulties that one might that are kind of characteristic of some neurodiverse profiles would that be helpful first yeah i think so um because quite often things that both parents and teachers and other um adults who who work and support young people uh, have historically been seen as kind of bad behavior so things like refusing to do what you've been asked to do or being too energetic or too lethargic or not uh, not being able to focus attention so people say oh he's got really terrible concentration or uh, not being able to organize belongings very well and forgetting stuff and not and what people see is not listening but it might be very much about not being able to hold what someone said in in your memory so all of those things from people being seen as lazy um not concentrating being aggressive um being too emotional about stuff um are all are all skills which are controlled and developed within part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex and their executive function skills. And those executive function skills are developed over time. In fact, they don't stop developing until around the age of about 25. That's the kind of latest thoughts on it. Um, and uh, they, some young people will have developed very strong executive function skills early on due to lots of dip there's there's loads of different variables here one is the kind of experiences they've had as um babies and in early childhood and even prenatally um so that can make a big difference to executive function skills later experiences whether um supportive or traumatic can make a big difference to executive function skills but so can biologically neurodiverse profiles so things like dyslexia dyscalculia and 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 sometimes ADHD and, a, and, and ASC all of those can be genetic genetically um uh, I don't want to say created but they have a genetic origin and so some young people just won't have such strong executive function skills in some areas, not in all areas. You know, it, de it depends on different profiles. And uh, it's not through anybody's fault. It's a bit like having short sight or long sight or, um, you know, all the other things that make us all unique and different. So the difference is in a classroom is that if someone's got really poor sight, they go to an optician well, they're taken to an optician and they're supported to have an eye test and, and the right glasses. In other words, the right support. Um, whereas when it comes to neurodiversity and a child who's finding it difficult to regulate emotions or focus attention, unfortunately, there isn't the same uh, process of support. What tends to happen is someone then gets into trouble for it. And that's the thing that I really want to change in that the way we address those difficulties in the first place comes from a knowledge of them being genuine difficulties whether it be due to experiences or whether it be to a 
uh, neurodiverse profile. Either way, they are genuine difficulties and also come with genuine strengths as well. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think one of the things that I would love to see is parents, um, teachers, social workers, doctors, all all the adults that work with young people, nursery practitioners, really understanding about executive function skills and really understanding about the brain and how they're developed so that they don't suddenly – I would. my mission is that in the end we don't hear the word bad behaviour. We hear the words, mm. oh, they're still struggling with some elements. Let's see what we can do to support them to get better at better at it like you would with anything else like you would with handwriting or with you know science knowledge or maths um like you would with being left-handed like about 20 years ago or something yeah you know yeah people used to get beaten for being left-handed didn't they exactly yes and my my dad was left-handed and i'm left-handed but he was forced to be right-handed and and he he was sort of whacked Mm. over the knuckles and ended up with a terrible um stammer for for years Um, yeah. But it, it for me, it's the same thing. Where the, I, I do really believe that in another twenty years' time, we'll look back and go, "I can't believe! Look what they used to do. They used to give children detentions mm. for genuine difficulties. Oh my gosh! Sometimes they put them in isolation, and sometimes they even excluded them for it because you wouldn't dream. You know, the things now. If someone said, "Oh yeah, children with uh, dyslexia who are really struggling with with elements, uh, we, we'll put them in isolation," people would be outraged now wouldn't they but um yeah it's the same sort of thing really um so yeah for me uh when children struggle it's either about executive function skills or it's about needs not being met well enough so their need to feel you know in all of the young people and i think this is true for adults as well we've all got a very genuine and uh natural drive to have relational safety and um we need to feel safe, supported, listened to, understood, cared for by all of the adults around us. So young neurodiverse people and adults, adults who struggle, when they're finding things genuinely difficult and they don't feel people understand, that will only exacerbate problems. Um, so, yeah, I think there's such a long way for society in this country to go before we really support people with neurodiverse profiles well and effectively. I think we've gone, we've gone a lot further, actually. I think we're, we're supporting adults in the workplace. Um, one of the things yeah. I work for, I still do a little bit of work for an organisation called Genius Within, and they specialise in neurodiversity. And they provide lots of um, in-workplace coaching through access to work. Um, for people with neurodiverse profiles and it's interesting that now there's much much more legal um what you can expect yes right way more than in school guidance and yeah Uh, okay right yeah and i think that um for some of the things that happen in schools if they happen in the workplace hr would have an Mm. absolute fit and start saying well, we've got to take this to tribunal because you couldn't possibly say to a, a work co- a colleague, well, no, sorry, you're going to have to stay in a break every day. I mean, it would be illegal. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. some of the things which happen to young people are really not okay. And um, and I know a lot of young people, we've worked with a lot of young people now where I think the experiences they've had have really 
been emotionally very damaging for them and to their self-concept. Yeah. So rather than them seeing as having a self-concept of clever and strong and brilliant young people that have got some very specific difficulties around some of the executive function skills they end up thinking that they're naughty they're bad they're rebellious they're they're, they don't care you know all of these things that that there's so many young people who struggle and I think quite often adults take that into their adult uh, young people take that into their adulthood Mm. um and they self can I ask you can I yeah so I was going to ask you about this I think you were going to go on to this but I remember when I started really looking into ADHD what really struck me is that stuff that I learned in recovery coaching around the brain about executive function and um the sort of amygdala response the kind of fight flight and the brain stem it seemed to have a lot in common um, like a traumatized brain, an ADHD brain, and also a, a, a brain that is using substances in maladaptive ways, all seem to have similar profiles. Yeah. And yeah. so I was like, okay, this this just can't this can't be a coincidence. Mm. And, and then a coincidence. And then I read some research that said if you have undiagnosed ADHD and untreated, unsupported ADHD, you are a hundred percent likely to self-medicate and that I just went drop the book what what the hell is that and I wondered if you've got any thoughts about that there's definitely a very very high instance of um, neurodiversity especially ADHD but also in other um, profiles as well between that and substance abuse um, and 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 self-soothing medication Um, and there's a great book that I, I really enjoyed uh, which is very accessible by someone called Gabor Mate, who oh yeah, has, um, Realm of Hungry Ghosts, yeah. He's, it's not that one actually. It's yeah. um, it will come to me in a minute. It, do, before the end of this, I will have remembered it again. Um, Scattered Minds. Okay. Yeah, and it's about ADHD, and his his he posits that the the root of ADHD is is trauma, and um, yeah. some people would definitely um would would be not not happy about that as as a as a particular theory um but let's take that aside some of what he said in it really really resonate with me both on a personal basis and with a lot of the young people and adults that I've worked with and that is the the difficulty of the brain and body to have stillness and be doing nothing and the filling of that gap with other stuff and and so, uh, can be a very much causes addictive behaviors um and whether that be addictive so my my addiction has always through my life definitely been work i fill that gap of stillness with learning more doing more you know i and it, it's a really new phenomenon of me understanding myself going oh gosh yeah i actually find it quite difficult just to be with nothing yeah and why is that and it's kind of going oh my gosh wow because I hadn't really thought about that before so but and and I suppose what happens is some addictions are much more socially acceptable than others so my addiction of work and was actually is, is much more socially acceptable particularly you know if I think look at my my family and my parents I mean I think it kind of wore a bit thin with my partner 
but um and definitely with my ex-partner <laughs> <laughs> um, but the that but essentially I look back and I think yeah I wonder how much to, to what extent that is about filling that stillness gap but so so that that's quite socially acceptable in ter- for, for many people because it's like oh she works so hard and blah 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 and, and actually it was to the benefit I think well I hope you know because I would I would love being busy and I would work and work and do little extra bits in the middle of the night for, for young yeah. people. You know, I go, oh, I'm going to make a little booklet for Jeremy because I know he was thinking about worms today. I think I'll make him a booklet about worms, you know, at three in the morning. Um, and so in that in that sense, I suppose the, the, the output of my work probably, I hope at times, probably made people feel all cared for and supported and warm and fuzzy as Eric Byrne would say but um the some some addictions are less socially acceptable so alcohol and uh, other substance abuse and I, but, but I think actually if we, we could just put it all in the same net couldn't we and say it's people who are seeking something to fill a gap and certainly that's the way that Gabor Mate mm. explains it and and it kind well, of definitely makes- to self-soothe as well the, yeah the you know that the, I mean because I I sort of in the sober community I kind of also pick up this kind of you know maybe subclinical kind of uh profile such as you know HSP the MA I keep calling it HBC but a, you know highly sensitive person um introversion this sensory processing like it was only through working with my son that I realized that actually I always struggled with anxiety especially when I went to secondary school I can't cope if two people are talking to me at the same time I can't eat if the light's not right and I I used to get called a diva because I'd say I can't go in that restaurant (laughs) because they've got awful lighting (laughs) but it's actually because I feel very 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 anxious and I'll get bad stomach if the light's not right yeah so and, you know, interestingly, so interesting, I found okay. that I self-medicated with alcohol, you know, um, and it was a way of self-regulating the brain chemicals now, boosting my GABA, um, you know, trying to calm my nervous system in the same way that I see happening with other people, for example, people that I work with and I coach, but and also, you know, my children. It's like, oh, okay. Like so but back to sort of gabble mate, mm. there's, there's there's some kind of there's no uh coincidence that a lot of sober people find their way to sort of meditation, to mindfulness, to things that actually are training the prefrontal cortex, our executive function training exercises Absolutely. essentially, right? Yeah. yeah, and I think some people. It, it's interesting. I, I was watch, uh, reading an interview with him, and um, he was talking about the struggle uh, with ADHD to meditate and to have yeah. any kind of mindfulness. It's actually really hard. And I think one of the things is when we recognise. I mean, when you were talking about sensory processing, I think that's something I look back uh, and I've talked to you about this before, Kate, about my in, in my headship. And I think there were so many things that I know now that I didn't know then, which would have been so useful. But unfortunately, what's happened in in school leadership is it's crammed full of so many policies and documents and change and different inspection frameworks and things. that Actually, there's very little time, even for someone and I was working like very long hours but even then it didn't leave a lot of capacity 
for really developing a really good knowledge of some of these things that I look back and I think is so important for every person in school to understand. Yeah. And sensory processing is one of them. And I think by understanding one's own sensory needs, uh, one of the things that we use in our models, uh, one of our models that we use, first of all, we use, we talk about needs, that we've all got differing needs. So we've all got differing physical needs. So some people need more sleep than other people. Um, some people, if they don't get a good eight to 10 hours, they find it very difficult to feel calm and, and, and happy. Whereas other people can feel really good on six hours. So we've all got different sleep needs. We've all got different temperature needs. We've all got different, and, and they can be different in different times. Uh, so, you know, different times in life, different times in the month, different times in, uh, in the day for people. Um, but just when we recognize we've we've looked and analyzed this with many 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 people and then created cards which um people have found really helpful because it categorizes these needs from basic physical sensory emotional and then cognitive executive function needs so if mm. if we look at something like um sensory needs i'm really similar to you kate in that i really need um, a quite a quiet space. I, I can't bear really noisy music to the point where when I go to gigs with my partner, I often will take some noise cancelling earphones and play Leonard Cohen through them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a big fess up. That I know, really I know. We went, we went to see the OCs and I just found it one big fat noise. I, I've, I, I know people, people there were absolute in adoration and they loved the gig. So I, this isn't a criticism of the OCs, but I just, it wasn't the right sound for my brain and I felt really anxious, really anxious. But fortunately, I had um, brought my headphones, so I just sat at the back and listened to Leonard Cohen. I did get quite a few weird looks. But you know, <laughs> I've got to that point where I think, I don't really mind how many funny looks I get. If As long as I'm happy and calm, I'm all right. And, and I'm very sensitive to tags in clothing. You know, my brain can't think of anything else. It's just thinking about that little itch. Nothing else is all it can think about. And I've tried to train my brain not to get so um, irritable about tags on clothes because or tight clothing. And yet we put young people in the most ridiculous uniforms these days, you know, where people become very, very obsessed with ties and and blazers. And you think oh, you know, sometimes we don't think about what are we really looking for here? We're looking for young people to feel at their best for learning because they're in education for learning, not for yeah. looking like they're about to enter some new, I don't know, uh, fashion show for the best uniform. And I think sometimes uh, I see school leaders making, and this is all about, this is about accountability. It goes back to accountability. People think, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll do all the surface stuff. You know, we'll get all the mm. emblems and the rent uniform. But actually, the important stuff for leaders to think about is, are we meeting the children's needs on a day-to-day -day basis? Do they feel great? Do they feel great physically? Mm. Do they feel great in a sensory way? Do they feel great emotionally, relationally? Do, you know, do they feel really unconditionally supported by the adults in that place? And do they feel great emotionally in terms of, self-efficacy do they feel they can do what they've been asked to do? They do do they feel in control of having decision making and do they feel cognitively their needs are being met you know is this interesting enough for them is it the right 
amount of information or is it just too overwhelming because they're working memory because that's another another one of the executive function skills is actually their working memory so so limited that they can't remember the first instruction because there's been way yeah. too many things since then and then what happens so, hmm? i'm just thinking as you're talking about this sorry to interrupt but i yeah, was no. just thinking how how great it would be if then you also taught kids to reflect on that themselves and yeah. to be able to self-manage. Absolutely. That, and that's what so we're doing. All of that, yeah. And that's what yeah. you're, the work that you're yeah. doing is like asking those questions, getting to know what you, what your, what your needs are essentially. What do I yeah. need right now? And to yeah. identify them. And right. to be self-advocates. I mean, that's what I, yeah. would, I really would love to. And unfortunately, at the moment, some schools have not got the right culture for great self-advocacy amongst young people. Right. And there's a danger, you know, that that's a danger that you, you teach you know, as, as coaches we, we, and, and parents, we teach our young people to be great, strong self-advocates. And then they go into school and they say, what I need is this. And they get, you know, shut up, be They're quiet. Yeah. yeah. So it, we've got to, we've got to help young people to become strong self-advocates. And we've got to make sure that, that people working in schools and clubs and, and working with young people in all different contexts also understand this stuff so that when a young person says, do you know what, for me right now, this is so, it's just too noisy or too light or too bright or too airy or too hot or too cold. Can I just do something to help myself? That they go, yeah, brilliant. Well done. And when they say things like, oh, do you think we could do this in a different way? Because that was quite a lot of information for me. And now I can't remember the first thing you said. That people don't go, oh, you need to listen better, William. They should be saying, oh, gosh, that's really hard for you. I'm really sorry that we hadn't met your need in that way. Um, let's see what we can do now. And so that there becomes a new unconditional support for young people and a much better understanding of neurodiverse profiles. And it kind of comes down to, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Fonagy's work, but he's a psychotherapist who's one of the leading experts in, in the UK. In fact, um, I, I love his stuff and I happened to catch him um, on, he was on Radio 4 not long ago um, talking about his work. And I was like, oh, how exciting it's on Radio 4. Mm. Um, but he's one of he's a, he's a real leading expert in, on um, something called mentalization, which essentially is about making sense of your own thoughts and feelings. And I hope I'm not doing a disservice by explaining this badly. But essentially, the more we can really recognize, understand, and have this self awareness, where we can we can uh, I call it mind search me and mind search you. Where when I do a mind search me, I'm really searching into my own thoughts and feelings and my own um it's really about i know how my brain i'm i'm being aware of how your brain is ticking yeah and and also being aware of how someone else's brain is ticking so being able to think about their thoughts and feelings and that's when you get really good emotional intelligence don't you when both parties yeah. are able to mentalize mm. um so yeah if if we can get if we can get young people being able to do a do a me mind mind search and go oh yeah oh yeah I have got quite a poor working memory oh but I'm really good at that oh I'm brilliant at that oh I find that hard um, oh I'm really good at innovative ideas oh I find it quite difficult to follow things through you know so that, mm. but in a in a curious way one of our uh, changing chances one of our um, mantras is um, from curious from furious to curious that we try we should oh, be curious not furious yeah. with with young people. And, and, and you then, know that sounds so simple, but I know from you know my experiences with with my son, like you know, 
because of this negative, 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 we are on the defensive. We're just, we are furious and the slightest thing can cause this a reaction and to switch to the safety and, and, and uh, sorry, I'm just going off slightly on a tangent because we were talking about lockdown, weren't we? And this amazing, mm. you were saying it's an amazing opportunity to connect with your kids mm. Mm. and to foster attachment. And I have really noticed with my son just in the last couple of weeks, oh, you know, I've almost seen him excel in the shoulders drop that he doesn't have to go out, yeah. that he doesn't have to cope with yeah. school, that he can talk and he's laughing more and mm. and maybe want, now we might be able to get to the point where he might be able to start being curious yeah and yeah because that's he, the first thing it's about helping young people to stop being furious about themselves but which yeah, can come exactly. out in guilt and it can come out in anger and it can come out so young people that are smashing stuff and shouting and swearing and throwing things and and doing things that parents get you know really upset about the the we have to the first thing we have to be is curious because we know that that we know that they can't possibly be feeling okay because people who feel okay don't do stuff like that one of our other there was um we say when when children feel better they do better and it's the same with adults mm. when people feel better they do better so any adult who who is doing things which the people around them think are difficult behaviours, whether it be getting drunk or whether it be overeating or whether it be shouting and screaming, we know that person doesn't feel feel okay. And um, Jane Nelson, Dr. Jane Nelson, she's got this great quote that I always use with teachers, and that is, when did we ever get this crazy idea that to help children do better, we first have to make them feel worse? oh yeah such a good quote isn't it you think and you know I think it's great for any like you said about adults because I think the other thing about that is that people who have substance use disorders um who may be self-medicating will see this a lot in the sober community especially I would say with the with women because I generally work with women is that them doing that them it to themselves and beating up on themselves and making yeah, themselves yeah. feel worse and yeah. then expecting themselves to do better so that's yes. sort of self-compassion yeah and you know and support you know self-compassion and, and support I always remember you said to my children that if you you should do whatever you want um and it and to follow your sort of heart was that there was a message but that you needed to find something you love and have a great teacher I yeah. remember you said that. So that covers that. Okay, I'm going to go to find something that lights me up, that makes me feel good, and I'm going to get support. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, um, I mean, I think you've summed it up, and it was interesting because this is the stuff that um, Ken Robinson, who kind of I'm not sure, I'm not saying that he fell out of favour, but became you know he was like popular uh, about twenty. Was it about twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, ten years? The, the years just disappear, Kate. And, yeah. and that was about finding your element, and it's so true. I have to say mm. that in all of my work, it never feels like I'm working because I love it so much. And it is when you find something where you just feel, well, this is great. Um, that that will be the ideal to find for every child mm. and for every adult. And I think once that happens, because when you find something you love you tend to work hard at it and you tend to get good at it. And then you feel, when you feel good at something, you've got that self-efficacy 
that then gives you confidence. It's all, they're all kind of, they're all so interlinked. Going back to yeah. something you were saying before about when, when people feel good, they do, they do better. And, yeah. and when they don't feel good, they do, they don't do so well. Um, the, the work of Stuart Shanker, I've been, I, I'm got, he, he works out over in, in the States, but he talks about stressors and essentially our needs cards are very similar to what he talks about as being these five different domains that can become stressors. And one of them, as we were talking about before, was this physical and sensory and, and, and then emotional stressors. So I think when, when a, whether it's an adult, I think the work we do is kind of irrelevant whether you're, three or whether you're 53 or 63 or 73 because it's really about saying when when things aren't going when you're not managing to uh, operate in a way that would help you feel good and for other people around you to feel good there must be something going on there must yes. be a stressor yeah so that's yeah. the first thing so you start with curiosity and then you start helping that person to self-forgive which is the kind of work of this health psychologist called Kelly McGonigal. And one thing, uh, I haven't uh, read her work for quite a while now, but I remember it always really struck me. She talked about the worst thing you can possibly do when you fail at something is to beat yourself up about it. So yeah. when you don't, when you don't, when you've said, oh, I'm going to jog every day and the day you don't do it because you think, oh, I can't do it today. The worst thing you can do is go, oh, well, that's terrible of you. The best thing you can do is go, oh, I wonder what stopped me from feeling I could today. I wonder, mm. I wonder what helped me to feel I could yesterday. And I wonder what the difference is. And I wonder how I can use that knowledge to help me definitely do it tomorrow. And, and I think that is, if we use that as a rule of thumb, when, whether we're working with adults or young people, where it's about a curiosity of, what helps it to work well and what helps it to mm. not work well? Because yeah. there's never someone who's doing it 24-7. So you have to look at, I call them, uh, well, it's not just me, but the bright spots where you say, well, yes. when 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 does it work okay? When am I managing okay? And it's yeah. interesting. I always say there's a, the, the num something that young people say to me very regularly who are neurodiverse young people, who are the same young people who – there's a big, big uh, link between neurodiversity and exclusion. There's a big, yeah. big link between neurodiversity and addiction. And there's a big, big link between neurodiversity and later criminal justice involvement. Yeah. And that this is why it's so very, very important that adults help young people to start feeling okay and then doing okay at a younger and younger age. And it starts at, in nursery. You know, the number of, and be interesting whether you experience this, Kate, but the number of people I've worked with where they say, oh, yeah, actually, people called him naughty when he was at nursery. Because mm. it doesn't, you know, it can often, and sometimes it starts yeah. a little bit later on. Sometimes it starts in kind of year two, three, when the, the curriculum starts getting more formal and, and, and it feels a bit more controlled. Or the young person yeah. feels more controlled, more hemmed in. Their needs are being met less well because the mm. curriculum has become more formal. And sometimes they've been nurtured and well-managed through primary and they get to secondary and there isn't the same kind of support and they, they receive punitive measures for their difficulties and that's mm. where it falls apart. So this is kind yeah, of certain transition. recognise that, definitely. Yeah. And, and um, so... Um, yeah, yeah, sorry. It's about... <laughs> It's about that self-forgiveness and saying, actually, um, 
there's a genuine reason why I'm finding this difficult. I just need to look at what yeah. stresses. As I was saying about some young people, a very common thing that they say is, oh, I've got anger management issues. And I say, oh, okay. So that's interesting because I remember saying it to this lad uh, that, that I've been asked to. Oh, can you can you talk to him? And I did. I turned up at this school to do some coaching for leaders actually, and and someone said, "Oh, Kit, can you can you talk to this lad?" And he was covered in blood on the field. And I said, well, not really. I'm here to do coaching. And they were like, "Oh, please, please, please." And I said, "Well, I'm not rescuing you, but I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll 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 speak to him, and then if you watch and we we can talk afterwards about what you." picked up on some of the strategies I was using um, so that you can then start trying to see if you could work on that being part of what you do. Um, so it didn't become just a kind of fixing, rescuing um, escapade. And this lad, I, I sort of had a chat with him and sort of developed a bit of rapport. So he was okay chatting to me. And then and then he the, he said the, the classic of, oh, I've got anger management issues. And I said, oh, have you? And he said, yeah, yeah, I've had them, I've had them since nursery. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, you haven't got them right now. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you haven't got anger management issues right this minute, have you? And he said, well, I don't know what you mean. I said, well, why are you chatting to me? You're managing it very well, you seem to be. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I'm not angry. And I said, well, then there must be something that doesn't work so well when you are angry. And he was like, oh, I said, what do you think that could be? <laughs> and he brilliant. said, well, it's because when, yeah. they, when they speak to me horribly. And I said, well, that's it. I said, so yeah. when they speak to me, what would you like to have happen? And he said, oh, I'd like them to be nice to, to me like you are. And I said, oh, there we are. So what you really need is for adults to be speaking to you in a respectful way. And actually, it was, we st- it, it was a way of him mm. recognising that his anger management wasn't yeah. his problem. It was it was created by something which could yeah. change. It could change. Yeah. And, and and then we talked about. I said, you know, well, can we control everyone? Can we control whether whether adults in school are polite to us? And he went, no, not really. I said, what can you control? And he said, well, I suppose I could control how I. I can't remember how he put it, but in the end, we got to the point of he could control how he thought about it. So we talked about why they, why they might be talking to him like that. And he was like, oh, yeah. And he recognised by the end of the session, he was like, oh, yeah, they're finding it difficult to regulate their own feelings. Yes. Oh, oh, so they've got regulation issues. So he could next yeah. time they speaking to him rudely in his head, he was like, well, what I'm just going to think is, oh, they're not so good at regulating their feelings. Yeah. And so he actually it kind of turned it right around. And that helped him yeah. to feel calm. Yeah, because that's very empowering as well, isn't it? So he's yeah. going to feel safer, empowered, calm, like just those skills. And I, I just think, and I, I just again see so many parallels in terms of people um, when they first stop drinking and trying to manage their days and yeah. their uh, emotions and the flood of emotions. Because if you've been used to using alcohol, you don't you haven't got those those skills on board necessarily to um to manage your emotion emotionally regulate so a lot of again is this kind of emotional regulation systemic regulation tools to approach things life tools and honest to god kit you wouldn't believe how many people i i see as you know, and the way when we get talking, it's like, oh, right, you've got neurodiverse children too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you've got a problem when the music's too loud. So you probably have a few sensory processing issues. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what I'm quite interested in as well. Just, I mean, if, if you could give people some tips that if they feel that maybe they might have 
you know, a neurodiverse profile, which maybe they need a bit of help with as adults, or maybe their kids do. What what tips would you give, give people or advice as to where to start with all this? I think the first thing is um, to find out more about different neurodiverse profiles. Um, there's lots of different websites and books out there about neurodiverse profiles. I mean, I think learning about executive function skills has been a very powerful thing for me mm. where yeah. I actually don't be and because it's the first step to when you understand why you might find something's difficult, you can stop beating yourself up about it. You can start going, oh, okay, so that's why. So when when you find um, the the noise too loud or too many voices in, in, going on at once and, and you get confused or um, or the hoover being anxious making, you know, the sound of the vacuum cleaner or the mixer being – we had a generator, a, a temporary generator put outside really near to our house because of some roadworks. And I cannot tell you how anxious making it, it – to the point where I said to my mum, I think I might have to move in with you. And she was like, oh, my gosh, it must be bad. Um, <laughs> and um, and yeah. but actually, I by that point – I had already recognised that actually this was about sensory processing. It wasn't because I was um, overdramatic or any of those things because I'm quite a level kind of person. So I think the first thing we can do is make sense of ourselves in terms of our needs. And I always think of them in terms of those sensory needs, basic physical needs, emotional needs. I call them people around me needs. What, What do we need? How much noticing do you need from other people? Some people are quite self-sufficient. They don't need a lot of a lot of noticing from other people, whereas a lot of recognition from other people, whereas other people, they need a lot of recognition. They, they need for people to say, oh, actually, I think you're doing really well. But if you know that about yourself, you can self-advocate in a positive way. So you can say, oh, actually, it would really work well for me if you could give me feedback. Um, let's say in the workplace, give me feedback. Whereas what often happens is people don't know their needs or or they feel guilty about them. And then when they don't get that, let's say there's someone who does need that recognition more frequently. They When they don't get it, they then feel um there's an emptiness they don't feel great about themselves and then that and then that can create emotional dysregulation they start feeling irritable about it and angry and then they can fall into quite powerless positions where they start blaming other people for it or or feeling helpless whereas if you can if you can try and shift into more empowered positions um and this kind of comes from the work of Stephen Cartman uh, um Stephen Cartman and the uh, drama triangle. But I always think that the issue, first of all, I think some of his terminology was a bit, um, uh, a, a bit kind of too uh, strong. Like he talks about the persecutor. Mm. I think actually persecutors are very strong people. I always think of you know, World War Two and, uh, and the concentration yeah. camps. The Nuremberg trials and stuff. Yeah, whereas persecutor, whereas I just say blamer, when you start blaming other people yeah. for everything that's happening and, and feeling helpless rather than feeling a victim, because I think victim yeah. is provocative as well. Yeah, um, is, And yeah. then trying to, to, to shift into empower positions such as negotiator and challenger and solution finder because it's about recognizing it goes back to self-awareness about saying i'm going to notice i always think it starts with 
it starts very small, little steps of I'm going to start trying to notice what my whether my needs are being met well, whether my sensory needs are being met well, whether my emotional needs are being met well, whether my emotional to do with the world around me, do I feel in control of what's going on? Do I feel high levels of self-efficacy? Do I feel I can do what people are asking me to do? Um, oh. Do I feel it's the right kind of uh, amount of information and my cognitive needs being met well? Is it the right amount of time that I've – is it too long to have to focus attention all in one go? You know, I know that I can focus – I can absolutely hyper-focus for hours and hours mm. when it's something I'm really interested in in the middle of the night where it's still, you know, that kind of stillness. And yet you try and get me to focus on writing a policy at two in the afternoon. No, like I could – I just yeah. – I'm terrible yeah. at doing it. So it's also about finding when you're at your best and going, oh, what's that mm. about? Okay. Oh, actually. And it's like you say, it's that real inquiry into what's is, going yeah. on. Yeah. How is yeah. it affecting me? What do I need? And also with, you know, the kind of lens that I put this through for this is like, what am I doing then at that point to try and self-regulate? And is it maladaptive? Yeah. Is it I'm yeah. I'm suddenly triggered and I'm craving a drink? Or yeah. it's like, oh, okay, I might need to move away from the crowd. I might need to regulate my nervous system yeah. and make things go quiet. Yeah, it's like that's such a information, good information, yeah. tools. And, and, think, and then you have that power of the pause, don't you? You have yeah. the power of the pause mm, and the executive mm. function kicks in yeah. and you generate a different choice, which that's is going great. to be self-fulfilling mm. rather than self-undermining yeah. or damaging. And I think there's a key thing you say there in that it's it it's at that point you have choice I think often yeah. we think people have choice in addictions when actually they don't because they're being driven not by their executive function skills that the, the driver in it the one who's who's at that that you know I always think of it a bit like a you know, a, a group of huskies and 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 the, the husky at the front has to be the the prefrontal cortex doing the thinking it's got to be that kind of really rational thinking but actually if it's the if it's the the addictive drive, which is the emotional drive, if let's say the um, and Paris, the sympathetic nervous system, if yeah. sympathetic nervous system has been uh, kicked in, and some people argue in terms of the science behind this, but I think this is sometimes I use terms like that because they're kind of understood by people. It's an understood narrative. So yeah. if people are in that kind of flight, fight, flock, freeze. Freeze, find yeah. all of those 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 stress responses that that the choice isn't actually there and I think we can learn I think that's an important point because teachers and people in schools often talk about oh you're making a bad you're making a good choice people have got to have enough self-awareness and strategies to actually do to have that pause yes. and it's once yeah. you've got the pause you can make the choice but you've got to have the pause for first yeah yeah um, and I think the other bit that you that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is that the issue of maladaptive or adaptive behaviours because mm. uh, it's some it's a piece of work I did with a group of teenagers recently I call them feel good chemicals where we looked at we had um, uh, ways of thinking about dopamine serotonin oxytocin mm. um, and we. I, I'd link them to dogs because you know I'm obsessed with dogs. So I had, <laughs> yeah. um, I had uh, serotonin as the uh, what? Did I, oh, dopamine is the sheep dog because I always think they must get that feeling of yes when they've got all the <laughs> sheep, when they've got all the sheep. Yeah. They must get, it's a bit like trying to get a yeah. parking 
space in Brighton, you definitely get dopamine. The minute you get the parking space, you go, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so I've got dopamine as the sheepdog. I've got serotonin as the police dog because I think they must feel quite important, you know, quite important mm. when they're going out in their little dog uniforms. Um, oxytocin, I've got the huskies um, who are kind of um, really oh, feeling that we're connected, we're a team, yeah. this is all fantastic. And um, and then trying to get uh, young people to go, well, how do I get those feel-good chemicals myself mm. at the moment? And are they healthy ways of getting them or do I use maladaptive ways? And so I've got this little chart which I we, we created with with teenagers where they just looked at to, to what extent did they um, find ways in which they could get their their feel good chemicals in positive ways. So and then the endorphins were things like exercise, laughter, um, rather than self harming or you know the, or or risky behaviour. So it's about um, just trying to go. Okay, I'm going to make sure I get my feel my fill of those feel good chemicals, but I'm going to look at how I can get them in positive ways. So I'm going to try yeah. and some new clubs and start some team the thing is ADHD and team sports often don't go very well together because um but but I'm going to try and get that sense of oxytocin that sense of team and belonging and that release of oxytocin in other ways I'm going to try and get that connection with people in other ways by you know joining a band and music that would be a great thing for someone with ADHD because and not always but often there's a real link between music creativity adhd tv production drama so maybe joining some kind of drama group so you start going well that's a much better way than gang behavior so you start looking at helping them to recognize because what often happens is both adults and children try and quash i call it quashing the prickle they try and push the prickles down that that need they've got um, so I had this I had this debate with um, a, a, a police officer because I was we'd been part of this project with the police and there was this um, youth um, police youth officer who was saying well I've told him time and time they were talking about this teenager I've told him time and time again if he carries on like this he'll be in prison blah blah I've told him countless times and I said yeah and that how's that going to work how's that going to work and I started to try and help him understand. If a child has got a need which is leading them to be part of gang behaviour, telling them not to do it or grounding them or doing all of those things where we try and quash it is 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 not it's just it's literally quashing it. It's literally trying I'd see it like a jack yeah. in the box. It's just trying to push that jack in the box lid down. Yeah. And in the end but it's like Name the need, point the need, point to the yeah. need, and then find a, a healthy way to yes. meet the need. Yes, yeah. so you've, got to, you've got to start by going, oh, okay, so there's a reason why you're getting involved in this game behaviour. It's not because you're bad, it's not because you're yeah. not. You've got a need that's not been met, or you and you've learned to meet it in a way that actually is not great for everyone else. Let's have a look at that. But you don't need to feel guilty about it. And so it's about then going, okay, well, instead of gang behaviour, let's have a look at something that's going to give you that same feel-good feeling, but in a way that's great for everyone else around you. And essentially, that's the same with addiction, isn't it? It's about how can we fulfil that need that's leading you to need to self-soothe, but in a way that's less maladaptive? Yeah. 
Exactly. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's, and then obviously you've got the fact that the the chemicals are certain things are addictive in themselves. Yeah. yeah. Because you know, but as part of their makeup, which charges it a bit more. But essentially, I I think, you know, uh, uh, certainly for people who are earlier on on the kind of you know substance use, alcohol use disorder because I see it as a massive, massive spectrum, yeah. that kind of behavioural training, frontal cortex, you know, executive function um, and insight into the needs, it's, it's just yeah. fantastic. It's yeah. so – And it's, it's not changed the landscape. Yeah, uh, and it's not behaviourism. You know, it's not, it's not you're doing something bad, let's stop you from doing yeah. it by making you feel bad. It's definitely not behaviourism, and I think it's really, really important that we recognise that. And I think yeah. you're right that we don't want to then replicate – that we don't want to substitute that feel-good chemical for something which actually ends up being maladaptive anyway because it becomes just as addictive. Um, so I think there's also some just this whole issue of, of being able to feel. Mm. Feel. I mean, a lot of people. If you look at Gabor Mate, he'll he'll put it down to a lot. A lot of it is about attachment and feeling connected, and. And healing, just healing some of the wounds and the trauma that people have experienced is part of it sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. I always say not always because some people will say, well, no, I'm not in that group. Mm. But, and, and also, um, this is another Kelly McGonagall phrase, actually, and that surfing the urge. When you get that, yeah. fee- that empty feeling, that feeling of I want a drink or I want a fag or I want a whatever, um, actually being able to hold that feeling. Yeah. And, and not have to do anything and then as watch pretty. it watch it ebb yeah yeah <laughs> it's got yeah, the peak yeah. and then it ebbs yeah. yeah there's a lot of that sort of stuff and that's what interested me because there was a lot of stuff that came out of those online sober forums that started springing up about 7 years ago where people were talking about all of this but they never called it executive function mm. but this is exact exactly what we're talking about yeah, um, yeah. and self regulation very, very self regulation yeah, yeah exactly yeah. impulse and, control but yeah. and not forgetting that it's actually also you know working memory and processing speed um, often mm. is, is linked, but not always. So some of the, and I think it's about that. Not always, because we're we are all unique human beings, and therefore some people will go, well, that's not quite me. But if but if they recognise, well, that little bit of it is, and that little bit yeah. of it is, then it's kind of there might be a there's pieces of it, aren't there? I, yeah. I really see yeah. that. And and then once you start, you know, I, we work with a great um, company, not company, organisation. They're not company at all. I don't know why I said that. A great, great organisation called She Recovers in the states, and they're sort of a uh, strap line if you like is that we're all recovering from something and yeah. I love that because I think we see that as well that okay what there are pieces in here that you know we see that when when mums become mums uh, maybe have had trauma or they you know have postnatal depression and suddenly they develop a substance use disorder yeah or suddenly they escalates or after a bereavement or you know uh, and part of this I I said to someone recently you know and I um, that I wasn't I didn't feel that I was in recovery from alcohol use disorder but I am recovering on a daily basis from struggling with a neurodiverse child at the moment Mm -hmm. and the amount of aggression that there is so it is you know we all have there's so much, I think, in all of the work that you're doing and all of the stuff that you're talking about that can help all of us, you know, because it's like 
it's almost like what it is to be human, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And we're I think, talking about the human condition, yeah. if you like. You know? Sometimes what we do is by using some words people have kind of boxed. And so let's take the word trauma. So people will say, well, I haven't had trauma because people think trauma has to be something like big. Uh, yeah. yeah, something really big. But actually, it's it, we all can uh, perceive, receive and experience life in different ways. So some things have a traumatic effect and they might be quite small. And sometimes little things over time can make a big difference yeah. to people's well, their well-being and their sense of self. I mean, I'm, I, I was talking to, uh, we've got an Ed Syke who works with us, and um, we were talking about adverse childhood experiences and how yeah. um, most people have experienced one and many people with neurodiverse profiles have experienced several. And there's a very big link between adverse childhood experiences and neurodiverse profiles, but not always. Yeah. But and I, substance use. And substance use, yes. Yeah. And I think... One of the issues is that people will look at that list of adverse childhood experiences and say, well, I haven't had any of those. My, my father wasn't mm. in prison. My parents weren't substance abusers, abusers themselves. Mm. Um, I haven't had any close, you know, my parents didn't die. But they'll go through all of these different things. But actually, when I, some of the young people I'm working with at the moment, who actually, many of whom have had, already had uh, multiple adverse childhood experiences, but on, with some who haven't, I think there's some wider, I'd love to start ha having them um, categorised as adverse child experiences. And that's things like being admonished on a daily basis by members of staff in a school where mm. where you're told you're you know, naughty and you miss your play. Well, that's just not good enough, Mr. So-and-so, you know, William um, or Jeremy or whoever. Yeah. And um, you're missing your play because that was not kind. You know, and that kind of when you're being spoken to like that and your sense of self is being um you're being told you're bad you're not okay yeah. when someone is telling you you're not okay on a daily basis i see that as an adverse child experience and a really serious one which has lifelong impact and that's why i suppose i'm on a mission because i think sometimes some of the ubiquitous um processes and procedures in schools i think are very damaging and yet they are so accepted so there, i cannot tell you the number of schools where even in reception and nurseries children are put up on the sun when they're doing what people want which as in things that are convenient and helpful and when they don't manage those things and it's inconvenient for people they're put on the rain and the clouds I mean mm. psychologically the impact of that or your name's put on the board and you're shamed these are daily things that happen in schools around the country and yet they're not being recognised yet by people who are writing policies as damaging for children's well-being. So I would love to, to see a real change in that. Mm. Kit, thank you so much thank for you. coming on and talking to us. I, like, I could talk to you all day oh, <laughs> really about it. You. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Not we really, really appreciate Let's it. And I think, mission. you know... Yeah, let's continue the mission, and and I just I think we we'll, we will have more conversations as as this sort of map becomes clearer, and I do think it will do over the next sure. few years. Brilliant. And, we'll and if do. people listen to this podcast and they've got any specific questions, um, yeah. yeah, I'm really happy to um, answer those. You know, if it's if you want to record them and again, where can they find you? Want. 
Yeah, lovely. Where can they find you, Kit? Well, they can find me at Changing Chances, or if they just contact you and and they say, look, we've got some questions for Kit and you want to re-record them, or, you know, um, then that's absolutely fine, however you want to do it. Okie dokie. So we can put some links before to Changing Chances. Um, If you are immediately concerned about your drinking, please do reach out. There are so many online communities now. So Baristas has an anonymous Ask the Doctor service if you don't want to go to your GP. You can send up a flay. You can send us um, an email at info at lovesober.com. And we love to hear from you. So do get in touch. Don't be alone. And we'll see you next week for more chats. Thank you. Bye-bye. 